are in week two of this series called Myth Busters. And we are going to be busting common myths concerning core doctrines. Look to the person next to you and saying, we're busting myths today. You can look to the person behind you and say, we're busting myths today. Everybody ready? So, when I was seven years old, one of the things I loved to play with was Lego. Anybody else enjoyed playing with Lego? Yeah, don't be ashamed. Lego's cool, man. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I see your hand. Lego was amazing to play with. You, got a, you, you get a chance to build these different things and be creative. It was actually pretty amazing. And one of the things I really wanted to build was a massive building. Um, I don't know why, I just wanted to build a really big one, as big as possible. But when I got to a certain size, for some reason, it would always tip over. It would always implode. So, as an irritated seven-year-old can be, I talked to my dad and said, why is my building always imploding? I want to build it as big as possible, and it just keeps imploding. It keeps falling over. What am I doing wrong? And he told me, the size and strength of your foundation has to be equal to the size of the building itself. Now, I'm not a structural engineer, So I said, big foundation equals a big building. He's like, yes. Now, all of us are doing something like what I was doing when I was seven. All of us are building something. There is something that you are building. Some of us are building careers. Some of us are building marriages. Some of us are building lives. Some of us are trying to build what life is going to look like after graduation. And some of us are building what life is going to look like when we retire. We are all building something. Now, everything that is built must have a foundation. Amen? Everything must have a foundation. Why? Because what you are building might look like what my failed attempt at a building looked like when I was seven. It's going to implode. It's not going to stand straight. It won't stand correctly. But I wonder, if we were to scratch down to the foundation of reality itself, what is that foundation? I want to say to you today, the very foundation of reality, everything that we see, the foundation is God. If you go back, if you keep asking the annoying questions kids ask, why, 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 eventually you hit up against the immovable wall of God. That is the most obvious explanation for everything that we see. And if God is the foundation for all reality, we have to have an understanding of who he is. Because all of us are building something, and if God is the foundation for everything, it's safe to say that your understanding of God directly affects the quality and character of the foundation and the building that you are attempting to build. So this week, the topic is the foundation of reality, God. We're going to deal with what the culture says about God, what sound doctrine says about God, and using sound doctrine, how do we live our lives? So as we reflect on this, let's take a quick recap of what we said last week. Our key verse is 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4. For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth 
and wander off into myths. Last week, Pastor Matt reminded us of the importance of truth, noting that false theology arises from bad doctrine, itching ears, and carnal desires. He also said that sound doctrine equates sincere faith. He also emphasized that it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. And as truth bearers, we don't invent the truth. We don't, we don't invent the truth. We don't conjure up the truth. We simply are ambassadors of the truth. And lastly, I want to reiterate what he said. The reason why we're preaching this, the reason why we're standing up and talking about these topics is because we want everyone here to receive a crown of righteousness. If we don't preach this, if we don't preach like this, we are setting you up for failure. So that's why for us, it starts with preaching the word, in season and out of season. Proclaiming the word when everything is going great or when everything is going wrong. We have to preach the word. So for, de- for today, I want you to think about this verse in this way. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching about God. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth about God and wander off into myths. So, starting here, we told you about a special word called zeitgeist. Zeitgeist means what is the spirit and mood of a time in history. So the zeitgeist of our time, the spirit and mood of our historical moment, can be divided into four main aspects, four categories. Technology, terror, nature, and narrative. Technology, terror, nature, and narrative. It's widely acknowledged, particularly by those who have experienced much more of life, that technological advancements is occurring at a faster rate than ever before. In fact, over the last 100 years, there's been more technological advancements in recorded history than ever. See, from medicine to music, it's safe to say that there's not one portion of our human society that has not been affected by technology. Now, despite the progress that we've made through our technological advancements and our increased knowledge of ourselves, the world, and the cosmos, it has not necessarily brought a sense of peace and understanding. On the contrary, it's actually made us much more fearful, anxious, and has even instilled a sense of terror regarding the future course of human history. This sense of terror is evident in the global efforts focused on climate change and the preservation of natural resources. In an attempt to take control of human history, political leaders from national to international levels are striving to ensure the survival of our species. And it's all driven by the fear of the consequences of our actions or inaction on the planet. Now, regardless what you think, because there's different opinions on climate change, it's the main conversation of our world right now. Now, given all of these things, everyone is trying to seek and change and mold their narrative. So with advancements in technology and fear of an uncertain future and the state of the world, everyone wants to align themselves to what they perceive to be the right side of history. Has anyone heard that being said? 
They want to be on the right side of history. So whether through social media or traditional outlets, people are striving to shape their personal stories and narratives to fit the larger narratives of what they want people to believe about themselves. We are all doing it. Each of us are attempting to shape our own narrative through what we choose to share or not share online, topics we discuss or the ones that we avoid. We are all shaping a narrative. So if this is what's happening in the zeitgeist, this is what characterizes our time. What would the average person on the street say about God? There's three things that our, our culture, our zeitgeist would say about God. They'll say that God is accessible, intangible, and static. Accessible, intangible, and static. So due to the rapid advancements in technology, our understanding of who God is has evolved. We have access to information and perspectives that were previously in that, um, unaccessible to those before, these, those before that lived before the advancements. Accessibility to God is no longer confined to specific traditions or groups. In our technological era, everything has become decentralized and democratized, meaning that information and power is no longer concentrated in the hands of a few. Everybody has access. So, understanding who God is is not limited to a select few. It is now available for everyone. And this is especially empowering for those who have historically been unheard. Intangible. As we can clearly see, there are numerous issues and challenges facing our society. While people strive to discuss solutions and a way forward, it's a highly complex task and intangible task. So if we consider God to be more complex than anything we can observe, it is reasonable to conclude that God is intangible as well. Given the nuanced nature of every issue that we face, it is plausible that our understanding of God is also supposed to be complex. Who can definitively claim to be right? Our understanding of God is based on our own experiences and perspectives and limited comprehension. God is static. Describing God as static does not mean that the divine is rigid. Characterizing God as static is more of a critique of those who claim to comprehend God. In a society experiencing constant flux and significant changes, who are we to assert that our idea of God is the ultimate truth? In fact, most people that claim to understand God often hold archaic beliefs and are reluctant to address current societal issues. Even if they do address them, their concept of God might not even align with the realities of what we see in present time. It seems apparent to those who claim authority to know who God is often become oppressive institutional structures that marginalize differing opinions and fail to consider alternate perspectives. Many of us here today would hear these descriptions of God and due to the complexity and intangibility of God, they would say, this is true. What the culture says about God Christians might even say, that's pretty accurate. This is what would, they would say in their head. It's widely acknowledged that everyone has access to God, right? 
And if God is complex and he's intangible, well, maybe we can't say objectively who he is. Anything that we would say, it's just going to be a subjective perspective, right? Every individual possesses a unique perspective that should be acknowledged as trustworthy and valid. That's your experience. And especially for marginalized people. And in pursuit of being on the right side of history, we should remain open to changing our understanding of who God is. When we are presented with new evidence, we should not be rigid. No one wants to be like a dinosaur stubbornly clinging on to outdated beliefs that are incompatible with the modern era. This way of thinking has infiltrated the church worldwide. It has made its way into churches in Canada, including those in Ontario, in Bowmanville, and even Liberty Church. How do I know this? Because Paul informed Timothy in our key scripture that there will come a time when people will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. You see, Paul had already instructed Timothy to silence false teachers in Ephesus. Therefore, resistance to sound teaching has always existed. In various forms and manifestations, we know it will persist until Christ comes. So, you might ask, all right, preacher, you got to prove it. How is this creeping inside the church? Well, when Christians take on the zeitgeist ideal of who God is, what the culture says, this is who God is. This is what happens. First, they lose the unique nature of Christianity. You see, Let's make this simple. Every entity, everything has a distinct nature that defines it. I'll prove it. What makes an apple pie apple pie? It's the fact that it's a pie made with apples. Does everyone agree? Okay. What makes a blueberry pie? It's a pie... That's made with blueberries. Does, does everyone agree with that? It, whoa, does everyone agree? Okay. I got scared for a second. Okay. Now, what makes a chocolate chip cookie a chocolate chip cookie? Exactly. It's a cookie that has chocolate chips in it. Now, can you have an apple pie that has no apples in it? It's no longer an apple pie. Can you have a blueberry pie with no blueberries in it? It is no longer a blueberry pie. Glory be to God, if you have a cookie and there is no chocolate chips in it, I'm telling you now, it is not a chocolate chip cookie in the name of Jesus. You see, once you remove the key characteristics of what makes Christianity Christianity, it's no longer Christianity. Once you take the main ingredient out, it's no longer what you think it is. You see, once we strip what scripture says about God, 2,000 years of history, we throw it out the building, you no longer have the Christian faith. What you end up doing, if you take on the zeitgeist idea of God, you turn God into this vague, elusive, intangible deity uh, that cannot be authoritatively understood, uh, you get this weird 
thing. You see, what, what sets Christianity apart from other faiths, it's not merely a collection of rituals with Jesus slapped onto it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here. I got, I got some time. If we think that we are just doing religious rituals and we happen to be worshiping Jesus, you have Christianity wrong. If this build, if the, the only thing that separates this house of worship from another house of worship in the city is merely Jesus, you actually have the Christian faith wrong. I told you we're busting myths today. You got me for two weeks, so strap in. Do you know why it's not just Jesus slapped onto a building or Jesus slapped onto a bunch of rituals or Jesus slapped onto a bunch of songs? It's because of what Christ says about reality. For example, scripture says this in Isaiah 45, 5 to 6. It says, I am the Lord and there is no one else. There is no God except me. I will arm you, though you have not known me, so that people may know from the rising and to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no one else. Okay. You see, that's not just a Bible scripture. That's a claim on reality. If there are multiple people worshiping different gods and God says there's no one else but me, we're now stuck with, we cannot actually say things like, ah, oh, well, maybe we have a, no, there's a claim. There's one God and it's me. Do you understand? So, so the worship of this God is not simply songs with, we say hallelujah and Jesus in it. This building with a cross is the only thing that distinguishes us from other buildings? No, it's, it's actually much deeper than that. The Christian faith is a claim on what is real. You see, when God makes authoritative claims like this, Christianity cannot be taken as partially true or partially false. It's actually not 50-50. It's either 100% true or 100% false. Diluting the nature of Christianity means it ceases to be Christianity at all. The next thing that happens to Christians is they become relativists. Relativism simply means that Nothing is true 100% of the time. That is the easiest way to say it. Now, to be fair, there is an intriguing draw about thinking of God in this way. It ignites a sense of adventure and discovery within us when we embark on this lifelong journey to comprehend the divine. But this approach is not healthy, folks. Like any science experiment, we don't start by questioning what science is. If someone asks you to build a boat, you don't start building the boat by asking what is a boat. Am I am I lying? No. If someone asks you, can you make pancakes, please? You would say, what is the theoretical understanding of what a pancake is? We don't start there. There is an objective understanding of what a boat is, what a pancake is. And what we actually are supposed to do is building on the foundation, 
we try to contextualize how this boat or pancake can be best made to suit the particular circumstance. That's what we're supposed to do. But right now, if you are a believer taking on what the world says about God and how the world says God should be understood, you will throw away the very foundation. You have to start from the beginning. You have to throw away 2,000 years of people that have been praying and seeking God and writing and thinking about the faith. you got to throw it all away and you in your small room trying to figure it all out by yourself. Christians right now are not trying to contextualize the 2,000 years of history. Right now, we're seeing it. If you look at what's happening in different strands and traditions of the church, people are throwing it all out. There's churches that have their statement of faith on their website, but in their practice, they do things in absolute contradiction to it. That's where we're at now. There's this cognitive dissonance. Well, the way that the past has seen it, uh, it's not not really 100% true because times have evolved. We have evolved. Maybe they were wrong. Maybe we have to go back to the beginning and figure it all out. My Bible says in Psalms 119-160, the sum of God's word is truth and every one of God's righteous judgments are everlasting. So if they're everlasting, there is an objective consistency to what they are. So in the minds of many Christians right now, the traditional understanding of who God is, that Jesus spoke, handed to the apostles, handed to the church fathers, and down through 2,000 years of history, it's not 100% true all the time. It was only true during a specific cultural era. Now that our current culture has different issues from the past, Christians in the church should be willing to take off the old and put on something new. You see, this ultimately comes down to the emphasis on personal interpretation over traditional understanding. Strap in your seatbelts, folks. Woo, I'm going to say it. Some of you would disagree with what's preached on Sunday. And instead of striking up a conversation to get clarity, you would say, I'm just going to go home and figure it out myself. You can cut it with a knife. We prefer our individual opinion over an authoritative position like the pastorate. We prefer it over 2,000 years of history. We think that if we have the Bible and we can do what we want because I have Google, I can access the truth by myself and my personal opinion means more than 2,000 years of history, more than what the pastor has studied throughout the week, more than what... Some of us even disagree with the Bible itself. Silence is good. This is what Christianity has come to. And before you say, no, no, not me. It's not me. Let's slow down. Do you agree with what you see in scripture, everything? The answer is no, because you're human. 
but are you willing to submit to it? 2,000 years of church history, orthodox teaching about Christ, that Christ has handed down, the apostles have handed down, down to the church fathers. We have the documents. Since y'all have Google, Google that. But what happens is you disagree with what you see in Scripture. You disagree with what the pastor says. You disagree with orthodox teaching. And guess what? You go on Spotify and YouTube and you type in your opinion and you find some one obscure pastor that's in the middle of backwards nowhere that agrees with you. And you say, man, he's preaching the word of God. How do I know it's true? The scripture said it. People with itching ears will seek out teachers that will tell them what they want to hear because they're carnal desires. You see, so many times what we do, we don't seek teachers who challenge our biases and call us to a higher standard. Instead, if you take on the way the zeitgeist thinks about God, you're just going to seek out teachers that were just going to pander to your passions and acknowledge your doubt. And me, maybe even if it's worse, you guys just trauma bond together. You seek out those kind of teachers. When there's teachers here that are not only going to acknowledge your doubts, but they're going to want to help you through them. Lastly, Christians fall away from community and tradition. You see, the unique nature of Christianity, once it's lost, and its foundation is diluted with cultural ideas regarding the holy faith, adopting a relativistic perspective and saying everything eventually leads to God. You know some Christians say that? All roads lead to God? Folks, I don't know when was the last time you turned on the TV, but this is what Christians are saying. You see, they're saying things like this. What do you think is going to happen next? Eventually, if the word of God is being declared Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and you disagree, you disagree, you disagree, you listen to your backwater preacher on social media, or your Christian uh, uh, influencer, eventually you're not going to stick around. I can't take it anymore. As scripture says, you wander off into myths. You see, when this happens, churches become destabilized and even divided. People are engaging and deconstructing, but they're not trying to build something better. They're just deconstructing for the sake of deconstruction. They're not actually challenging scripture, challenging the history of the church because they want to grow because they want to understand, they just want to challenge and deconstruct for the sake of challenging and deconstructing. How do I know it's true? Look at society right now. They're busting everything down for the sake of busting everything down. They're not actually trying to build something great, building on what has happened before that's been great. No, let's start from scratch. Let's break everything down and let's just work with the mess. Believers are doing that in church too. So what's the inevitable conclusion here? Schism or apostasy? 
Oh, Lord. Schism is a fancy word of saying breaking off. Schism can happen in multiple ways. There's people that will physically leave because of the beliefs and understanding that is preached from this pulpit. I'm out of here. I can't take it. They're schismatic. They're off. They're gone. But also there's people that are intellectually schismatic. That means your body is here, but your mind is not here. Your body's here, but you have, some of you right now are hearing these words and saying, I just can't wait to go home and listen to my preacher because this guy's talking some mess. Intellectually, you are schismatic. You're gone. Apostasy just means you fall away from the faith. None of this is real. I'm out, ski. I'm done. I'm not talking about going to another church as in I'm gone. Gone from everything. Gone from God, Jesus, the whole bit. Don't believe any of this. Okay. After all of this, you might be saying, okay, pastor. I disagree with some of the stuff you're saying. You see, embracing cultural perspectives and adapting to the current zeitgeist allows the church to remain relevant and engage with the modern world. Well, while I agree that it's important for the church to engage with the culture and address contemporary issues, we must be cautious to not compromise the core reality of what Christianity is. There is a difference between being relevant and trendy. Those of you who have fashion sense, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You dress classy. There's some, you know, actually I remember, I think myself and my wife, we were watching something on Instagram. And this lady, she was wearing something from the 50s or the 60s. But it looked good. And everyone was like, whoa, this, is, this is, looks amazing with the hat and the whole getup. That tells you there's some things that are just classy that no matter where you put it, it holds its value. I'm sure you guys have seen people that are still wearing some things from the 70s that you're like, eh, I think we got that one wrong. There's some things from the 90s that I remember I'm like, yeah, we don't need to be wearing that. You don't need to donate it. Throw it away. That tells you there's a difference between something that is relevant and trendy. The church cannot afford to be trendy because we will sacrifice the core nature of what Christianity is. Haven't you noticed trends pop up daily? New, something new, something new, something new, something new, something new, something new. If the church just tries to keep up with what's trendy, we're going to lose it. Now, another one of you might say, well, uh, pastor, okay, well, claiming to understand the full reality of God's nature can lead to dogmatism, intolerance, and excluding different viewpoints. Well, I would say this. It's true that we should approach the mystery of God with, uh, of God's nature with humility and recognize our limits of our understanding. However, that does not mean all perspectives are equally valid and that we should broaden the objective truths revealed in Scripture, faithfully taught by the apostles that walked with Jesus till now. We can hold a firm grasp on core doctrines that we see in Scripture and throughout the church and still have conversation. The issue is, many of us don't even want to have conversation. Some of us, yeah, I'm going to say it. You guys won't kill me. 
Some of us won't even share the gospel because you're afraid of what they might respond with. And I'm not talking about, I don't believe in God. I'm talking about when they ask you a question about scripture. Well, you believe this, but God says this. What do you say about it? And because... Because you're not in scripture, because you are listening to schismatic preachers, you don't even have a foundation to answer from. And in turn, that actually makes you afraid to even talk about Jesus. So when you share the gospel and your Muslim brother says, well, that doesn't make sense. You talk about this Trinity thing. Explain the Trinity. Some of you would be like, I don't even want to get into that conversation. Some of you already having like social anxiety just like hit you just because I said that. We have to hold to the standard that we have been given. We have to hold on to the standard that we have been given. Listen, there's nothing happening in society that Christian, that Christian fathers, mothers, and 2,000 years of history have not debated. Nothing. Don't let society fool you. We have the documents going all the way back to 30 AD. Everything's being talked about. Right now, everything is just a remix of what's happened 1,000 years ago. This should actually produce in you, when you hold on to orthodoxy, it actually should produce in you a confidence. Not an anxiety about talking to people about Jesus and talking to people about your faith. I'll continue. Lastly, someone might even say, the concept of a static God saying that it's objective and this is who God is. It actually limits spiritual growth and personal experiences. I would say no. While God's nature is unchanging, our understanding and experiences of God can and should grow and deepen over time. It's called sanctification. It's in the book. But the foundation of the truth has to remain steadfast. Listen, every time I open up this Bible, I see something different. Every time I go to God in prayer and think about who I am, God reveals something new that I have to think through. There is enough that we don't have to change the foundation. There's enough, folks. Some folk are talking about the apocryphal books and Deuterocanon and what scriptures are not even in the Bible. Have you even read the 66 yet? Have you read and studied the 66? Why are you calling the church phone and saying, asking about the gospel of Thomas? Read the 66. Then we can talk about the Deuterocanon. But some of us, as Paul says, we... We don't want to hold on to sound doctrine. There is something in us that just, ah, I don't want to hear this stuff, man. And we wander off into myths. In closing, I talked a lot about the culture, and you've been great. But I want to talk about what the sound teaching of God is. Talking about who God is could take all, all of the weeks of the series. But I'm going to attempt to distill it down into three words. God is relational, communal, and incarnational. See, our understanding of God begins by recognizing his deeply relational nature which is not evident only in his divine word, but also in his continuous engagement throughout human history. God is not some creator that just created and left. 
He's a creator of heaven and earth, and the very creation itself communicates truth about who he is. In Acts 17, 26 to 27, the Apostle Paul speaking on Mars Hill, he said this, he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek him, God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You see, this passage actually reveals what I said. God is not just a creator, but he wants a relationship. Psalms 19, 1-2 states, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. You see, this beautiful language is not just poetry. It actually illustrates God's glory and wisdom that are constantly communicated. Constantly communicated. Every human being that has ever existed on this planet in one way or another has experienced the revelation of God. Every single human being that has ever existed on the planet has experienced hearing the self-revelation of God. Every single one. This is important to remember. You know why? Because some people would say, well, what about the people that existed before Christ? If you read Romans 1 and Psalms 19, 1 to 2, every single human being, when they step outside of their house... God immediately starts communicating to them. If you've ever eaten food, God's communicating. If you've ever seen a sunrise or a sunset, God has communicated. If you've ever heard a bird sing, God has communicated. That's why it leaves none of us with excuse. God is constantly reaching out for relationship to every single human being that has ever existed. Next, God is communal. As Christians, we affirm that God is communal. But we do this in observing his very nature of the Trinity. You see, the concept of the Trinity might seem paradoxical and it's strange and it's hard. I assure you it's not. It's actually an invitation to deeper faith. Many analogies have been used to explain the Trinity, which is like a person being a father, a son, uh, and a husband, or water existing as solid, liquid, and gas forms. None of those are true. They're actually heretical. Do you know why? Because there's nothing in creation that is even similar to the very nature of who God is. So we can't explain the nature of who God is by pointing at something in creation. Explain the Trinity. We can't explain it by saying water or gas or liquid. We point to the scriptures and we point to the history of the church. We see in Genesis 1:26 it says, "Let us make man in our own image." This is hinting at the Trinity. Some people might interpret us as something different like a, a royal council or some sort. But if you look throughout scripture, it actually points to the multiplicity of God. The apostles' words in 1 Corinthians 8 Verses 6 reiterate the Father's deity. John 1.1 1, 1 firmly establishes Jesus' deity. And Acts 5, 3-4 attests to the deity of the Holy Spirit. If we read in Isaiah that there's no God but me, 
And in scripture, three beings are seen as God. What does that leave you with? The Trinity. It's not as hard as you think, folks. You see, if there's one God and three persons, how do we see each as persons? Well, we know John 3.16 shows a father who loves so deeply he sent his son. In Luke 22.42, we witnesses Jesus' struggle and submission to the father's will. And John 14.26, the Holy Spirit is revealed as also a distinct person. The advocate who teaches and reminds believers of Jesus' teaching. See, in the Trinity, we see a dynamic example of unity and diversity. Mutual submission without diminishing of, of divine stature and nature and cooperative work. When we say submission, as when God the Son submits to God the Father... And the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. We don't imply inferiority. Instead, it's a model depicted of mutual love, mutual, mutual respect, and cooperation. Seeing how one God can be dynamic, loving, diverse, and cooperative truly demonstrates what the church of God is supposed to emulate. It should be comprised of people from different backgrounds, life experiences, ages, preferences. They're all unified by one spirit. Sure, you might see elements of unity and diversity and shared work in other faiths and other places. But what makes us different, again, is the very nature and character of who God is. We don't take being unified in diverse and cooperation because that's the right thing to do. No, we do it because the God who we worship does it. Finally, God is incarnational. Our understanding of God is centered around the incarnation. Two natures, God and human, united in one person, which is Jesus Christ. You see, this is not a philosophical idea that we can play around with. It's the cornerstone, the bedrock, the beginning and end of the Christian faith. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the Son Sorry, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. By meditating on the person of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, we encounter a reality that is unique in all of human history. God has experiential understanding of what it means to be human in the human experience and suffering. Do you understand how revolutionary that is? Our God wasn't just a set it and forget it. Our God didn't just throw down laws for humans to obey. He united with human nature, came down, did not consider his godness something to be lorded and hold, it on, hold on to. He came down and became human. That is astronomical. That means God doesn't just know the human experience because he's all-knowing. He also knows the human experience because he experienced it. Think about that for a second. That radically sets us apart from Everything that has happened in human history from before. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. 
You see, in Christ, God embraced the human experience, showing us a love so profound that it transcends the boundary between human and divine, presenting us with an intangible, a tangible encounter, something legitimate, something real. And through Christ, we understand something even more about God. We understand what he's been trying to communicate since Adam and Eve till today. Acts 4.12 says, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among, among mankind by which we must be saved. You see, the divine plan for salvation isn't simply a ticket you punch and hope to get at the doors and redeem your ticket. The very fact that Christ came and united himself with humanity says something totally radical about what salvation is. Says something totally radical about what true submission to God is. It's not just salvation from hell. It's also salvation from sin, the world, anxiety, fear, terror, and even ourselves. Don't be fooled into thinking Christ only died just so you can get to heaven. Family, we have to graduate past let's just survive theology. Christ's life is an example of what it means to be a Christian. It's incarnational. Once you say you are a believer, you are living incarnationally. If you're here and you're not a believer... I want to invite you to really see the narrative that God has been speaking to you since you were born. Since you were born, God has been tapping you on the shoulder trying to have a relationship with you. And in this moment, it comes full circle because you are hearing the word of God being declared. What I'm speaking is revealed word. Everything else might sound like a mystery. Now the word of God has cut through like a knife and separated truth from error. There is only one name under heaven which you can be saved. And don't think this is just being saved from hell. You know it's true. There's much more happening in this world. Anxiety and fear and terror and wondering what's going to happen. There is salvation from all of that. Do you know why? Because the very person that is offering salvation has experienced all those things himself. And he said, I want you to trust me. And this trust is not just for today, but it's also for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Because he is the high priest sitting on the right hand of the Father. And he's actually telling God, listen. I know, I know. But I've actually experienced this. That shows the radical grace and mercy that's extended to you through Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here today, I'm pretty sure the whole sermon <laughs> probably felt like it was about you. But listen, I want you to fully understand that God being relational and communal and incarnational radically changed what it means to be a believer. It's not just about coming to church on Sunday. praying before you eat and praying before you go to bed. It's a radically new life 
You see, this faith is the essence of what religion is. It's not just Jesus slapped onto religion. It's the essence of what it truly means to be religious. Totally united with the divine. Scripture says it. When you are a believer, it's not you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's an incarnational reality. Following in the line of who Christ is. Lean into that. That changes our prayer life. That changes the way we even think about church. Man, if church is just simply a building, we come and sing songs, la, 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 la. It's actually so much more than that. As we all, as we said today, are united to the one body of Christ, you are not symbolically connected to Christ. You are really connected to Christ. There should be assurance. That should bring a sense of peace. When we see the world going cray-cray out there, there should be a sense of peace that we know I am not symbolically connected to Christ. I am not hopefully going to be saved. I am connected to Christ and I will be saved and I am being saved and I am forgiven. There is a peace that should, that should come that you can truly embrace.